And join me in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. If you're using the blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 1029. Page 1029. The title of our sermon this morning is Smyrna, Suffering. And our key words for our worshipers in training are suffer, persecution, and gospel. One of the things we regularly pray about, as we just did together as a church, is the persecuted church. There are Christians all around the world, even this very moment, who are under a heavy weight of persecution because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of their attempts to meet together for Christian worship, because of even owning and reading a Bible. Every year, the World Watch List comes out and is the most comprehensive, authoritative report of the top 50 countries in the world where Christians are persecuted for their faith. More specifically, they're tracking Christians throughout the world who are facing imprisonment, loss of their homes and possessions, including custody of their own children, torture, beheadings, rapes, and various forms of death because they identify as Christians. Over the past year, 30 of the 50 nations on that list have seen an increase in Christian persecution. And the conservative estimate is that 215 million Christians experience high or very extreme persecution. To put that in perspective, it means that one in every 12 persons who identifies as a Christian in this world is in a place of extreme persecution. One twelfth where Christianity is illegal, where it is forbidden, where it is punished to some extent, even for many unto death. The worst country in the world for Christians, as you might expect, is North Korea, and it has been for the past 16 years. Currently, to this day, there are over 50,000 Christians in prison or labor camps because of their refusal to worship the Kim family. Other countries, predominantly dominated by Islamic extremism, Afghanistan being nearly as bad as North Korea, may soon be worse. There are other countries in Africa, Asia, the Middle East, where persecution is increasing dramatically. Perhaps the most vulnerable of all of our brethren in the world are Christian women who face double persecution because of their faith in Christ, but often in countries where it is nearly a crime to be a woman. Every day, it is believed, at least it's reported, that six Christian women, six of our sisters in the world, are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage to a Muslim under the threat of death because of their Christian faith. Research for the World Watch List documented 2,260 instances against women in 2017. And the number only covers those who have the courage to report this going on. There are surely many, many more incidents. The countries where persecution increased the most over the last year are Egypt, India, Libya, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and Turkey. The countries of Nepal and Azerbaijan are newcomers to the list. They haven't been on the list before. This is the first time. 
Pakistan saw the most violence recorded against Christians in the last year, and Islamic extremism remains the global dominant driver of persecution of Christians in the world, responsible for oppression and conflict in 35 of the 50 countries on the world's list. But you realize all of this is going on today. Most of it is sort of out of sight, out of mind for us in America. But Christian persecution is not a new thing. It has been going on since the beginning of the church. We can read about it in the Bible. We see it very prominently displayed, and we will see it in our text this morning. For numerous reasons, various groups or governments have sought to silence the church as we have sought to proclaim the truth about Christ. And often it's through threats and intimidation. Oftentimes it's through actual violence. I'd encourage you to take time to read things like the World Watch List or to know what's going on in the rest of the world. Read the stories of the martyrs. Read about those who have given their lives for Christ. There are several books, there are various organizations dedicated to keeping track of those who have been killed in the name of Christ and and watching and seeing what's going on with them. And one of the reasons it's important for us to do this is not just so we know how and for whom to pray for, but also because it reminds us that this is a very real thing going on with our brothers and sisters around the world as we sit here this very morning in comfort and freedom. Now that shouldn't make us feel guilty, but it should make us feel very thankful for the privileges we enjoy. It's extremely rare in the history of the world that Christians have been able to gather freely and without persecution as we have enjoyed. It's also a reminder that one day persecution might come to us. How would we respond? That's the question we need to ask. Of course, now, right now, we're not under persecution, so we don't have the necessary grace from God to endure. But God would most certainly give it to us were it needed, as he promises, should we face it. But we can also face it with the reminder of where our hope lies. And while we may face some awful realities here on this earth, For those who are in Christ, we have hope beyond hope, and we can find much joy in what God has promised us. Last week, we began looking at the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor from Jesus in the book of Revelation. And we looked at the church of Ephesus and their zeal and their defense of the truth. But we saw that even though Jesus commanded them, to continue standing for the truth. And he, he told them they were doing a good and right thing. They had become zealots of the worst kind. They had forsaken their love for God and their love for their neighbor. They had become loveless, doctrinaire people who had divorced truth from practice. And so this morning we shift gears from that church to look at the church of Smyrna and see people who were under persecution and the threat of further persecution, even on to death. So let's read the text together and see what the Spirit has for us this morning. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, 
the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, remember we said last week Ephesus was the largest city by a long shot. It was the metropolis city, the center of life in Asia Minor. It was the first city that would have been on the mail route from Patmos, where John was receiving the revelation and writing these letters. Now, Smyrna would have been the next stop. It was about 35 miles north of Ephesus on the coast of the Aegean Sea. It was a city controlled by the Romans entirely. And Smyrna had supported the Roman government for over 200 years with their taxes and with their allegiance. As a result, they had earned the right, they believed it was a great thing, to be the place that was the center of emperor worship in Asia. And in 26 BC, they were given what was considered the privilege of building a temple to the emperor Tiberius. It was also a very commercial city, being that it was right on the sea, along with the people coming to worship the idols. And so you have idol worship, you're right on the sea, you have people coming in from all over the place. So it was, it was a very eclectic group of people living in the city of Smyrna. Along with all of the people was a large group of Jews. The earlier history of Smyrna is that it was almost entirely destroyed in the 6th century B.C., It was rebuilt again in 280 B.C. after the time of Alexander the Great. So by the time we get to this letter, it's only about 300 years after the city had been rebuilt. And to put that into perspective, it's only a little bit older than America is right now. But understand, this is interesting as we think about how Jesus introduces himself in this letter. He's writing to a community whose history is one of being destroyed and being rebuilt. In other words, the city had died and had been brought back to life. Does that sound familiar? We see throughout the letter to Smyrna that Jesus is identifying with the people because of what they faced. And so that's our first point this morning we see in verses 8 and 9. Jesus knows your circumstances, and he cares. Jesus is communicating to the church that he's not far off. He's not disassociated from them in their plight. He has protected them up to this point, and so he's presenting himself as the first and the last. He's presenting himself as the one who has died and come back to life again, just like their city. And there's, there's no doubt based on what they were facing. And we will see that, if, that they probably wondered at times if they were going to die themselves. Jesus faced persecution. Jesus died. Jesus came back to life. And if anyone should know that apparent death is not the last word, it's certainly the Smyrnians. 
And notice how Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not. In other words, please listen to me. I haven't forgotten about you. I'm not far off from you. I'm not ignoring you. I haven't abandoned you. I know what you're going through, and I've been there myself. We've looked at this a lot over the last few months, haven't we? As we looked at Esther, as we thought about assurance and spiritual depression, all these things, the Lord is showing us as a church over and over again through his word that there will be times in our lives when when we have this nagging sense that maybe God isn't there, maybe he's forgotten us, maybe Jesus doesn't really care, but he reminds us again from his word that he most certainly does. Through pain, through suffering, through trials, through hardships, through temptation, through sin, through every difficult circumstance that we face in our lives, the Lord knows those circumstances intimately and he cares deeply. Don't you just love those wonderful words of hope at the end of Romans chapter 8? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Of course, the answer is no one can stand in the way. No one can stand against us in a way that matters. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He will, and he has graciously given us all things. We have a heavenly inheritance that has been promised to us and is most certainly ours to partake of even now. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The answer is no one. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? The answer is no one. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding on your behalf because he knows you, he knows your circumstances, he loves you, he's concerned for your well-being, and he's making your needs known right this very moment in the heavenly throne room. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, 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 no. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, which means that tomorrow can be the very worst day of my life on earth. I can come so far to the end of myself that I can't even lift my eyes from the ground. I can't even lift my voice from a mere groan. I can't stop my tears. I can hardly breathe. But one thing I can always know for sure, it is all a slight momentary affliction compared to all that God has given and done for me in the Lord Jesus Christ. He endured a lifetime on this earth to fulfill all of the obligations that I have but cannot fulfill on my own. He died a death that he didn't deserve to die so that I don't have to die that death that I deserve. He was buried in the ground for three days so that he could conquer death, so that for me, death is a mere falling asleep to awaken on heaven's shores. And so even my darkest, most trying, most awful days on this earth that seem more like hell than heaven, 
I have all the affirmation that I need to know that Jesus knows me, he knows my circumstances, and he cares deeply. Now, in terms of how Jesus addresses the church in Smyrna, notice this is only one of two churches of the seven with whom Jesus doesn't address any faults. And I think that says a lot to us about how we address those in affliction, those in need of compassion more than they need correction in a certain moment in time. It says something about that more than it says something about the church in Smyrna itself. Were there problems in the church in Smyrna? I'm certain there were. There's problems in every church. Were there things that Jesus could have pointed out for them to be aware of and to fix? Most certainly. But they had a particular focus. They had a particular need. It was heavy for them to bear. And Jesus wasn't going to kick them while they were down. He wasn't going to add to their affliction. There's a lot for all of us to learn here. Jesus, knowing what's right for his sheep, knowing how hard to push them, knowing when to hold back. I love the text from Isaiah. Matthew quotes it in chapter 12. He says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. There's gentleness there, there's compassion, there's love. There will be times in our lives that seem unbearable, but the Lord is there. And listen, this isn't the false idea that, the, that God will never give you more than you can handle. God will always and regularly give you more than you can handle. Because the whole point is that you can't handle it. And you weren't intended to handle it on your own. Where's your strength? The Apostle Paul reminds us that it is in our weakness. It is in our weakness. It is when we are at a place where we realize just how weak we are that we find strength because it is found in Christ and not in our own pride-fueled attempts at making ourselves to be more capable than we are. But where was all of this coming from? What were the exact circumstances that Jesus was referring to for the church in Smyrna? There were several ways that the Romans sought to keep the peace among all the people in their various cities and provinces. They had a very large uh, kingdom. And so how were they going to keep everyone in check? One of the ways they did that was through something they arranged called God Swaps. Sounds like a reality TV show today. When people got obnoxious or rebellious, they picked them up as a people group, and they moved them to another land. And when that happened, there was a breakdown between the land and the heritage and the religion because people were separated from their normal way of life and all of their local gods. So what the Romans did was a god swap. When people groups became a part of the Roman Empire, they insisted that the local people adopt some of the Roman gods from the Roman pantheon. And the Romans would adopt some of the local gods of the people. After all, what's two or three more gods when you already have hundreds? So they swapped gods. Well, why did they do this? Or what did this do? It meant for the local people that might be otherwise tempted to rebel against the empire that they couldn't pray to their local gods anymore because their local gods weren't there. They had Roman gods, and they could pray to them, but of course the Roman gods weren't going to help them to defeat the Romans. 
But it also gave them in their minds that our gods are there protecting us. Theirs are here protecting them. Everything is peaceful. So for the Romans, that meant there was a breakdown of religious devotion in the sense that there was an idea that there was some kind of divine power that was keeping the peace and would keep all of them from some sort of revolt. However, there was an exception to all of this in the Roman Empire, and it was the Jews. As far as the Romans were concerned, the Jews were stubborn in their refusal to acknowledge any other god but their own. And to make matters more difficult, they couldn't even see their god. Where is he? Many of the Romans assumed that they were actually atheists because where's your god? What does he look like? So the Romans made an exception for the Jews. They did not demand that the Jews accept any of the Roman gods. And, of course, the Romans couldn't add the Jewish God because he couldn't be added to their pantheon. We couldn't see him. We couldn't touch him. They couldn't set up an image and say, this is the Jewish God and we worship him alongside all the others. So as for the Christians, the Romans simply assumed that they were another group of Jews. They thought they were a subset of Jewish people, a sect. And as long as the Romans thought the Christians were Jews, they didn't have any problems. The Jews were the only people who didn't have to offer incense to the emperor and to the pantheon of Roman gods. But everyone else had to do that because to the Romans, that was a test of fidelity and loyalty to, uh, to the leadership of the Roman Empire. It made you a good citizen if you worshipped the gods. So in time, the Christians were becoming more and more numerous, and not only more numerous, more and more Gentiles were becoming a part of the church, people who were not ethnically Jewish. And the Jews were not liking that. So the easiest way, as you can imagine, thinking about all of this system of God swapping and all, the easiest way for the Jews to deal with such a thing would simply be to tip off the Roman government that, hey, look, these people over here that you think are Jews, they're not actually Jews. This is something altogether different, and, and they don't have an exception to the rule, and they're not lighting incense to the emperor. They're not worshiping the gods of the Roman pantheon. And so what happened was exactly that. And as a result, the full power of the Roman Empire fell upon the Christians. Now listen, otherwise the Christians were great citizens. They paid their taxes, they kept the peace, they honored all men, they obeyed authority, they were helping all of their neighbors, whether they were Christians or not. But in this system, if you did not pay your offering up to the emperor by incense and prayer, you were a traitor. And so Christians faced terrible persecution because the Jews made it known that they were not them. So in the midst of all of this, Jesus says, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus is encouraging them in the midst of this, isn't he? He's saying, look, everything you have in this world may be taken away, but I want to remind you, in Christ, you are filthy rich. You have everything you could ever imagine. Don't forget that because your treasure is not here. Your treasure is in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. You are rich. 
Notice too, he says that those turning against them say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It was because of these so-called Jews that the threats of imprisonment and death were hanging over the heads of the Christians. So Jesus is telling them that these people are actually instruments in the hands of the devil. And this gets to what we considered last week, that the book of Revelation on the whole is a look into the supernatural world regarding all of our trials. Yes, there was a very real thing going on here with the Jews talking to the Romans against the Christians. But what was going on behind the scenes? Jesus is telling them this is a work of Satan. We'll see that more clearly in verse 10. Jesus is pointing out there's an active work against the Christians to discredit them, to persecute them. They're being attacked by Satan. However, Jesus goes on to remind them in our second point this morning in verse 10, be faithful even in the face of persecution. Look again at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now notice what Jesus said in verse 9 is very much connected to what we see him saying here in verse 10. The reference in verse 9 to the synagogue of Satan is tied to his reference of the devil throwing some of them into jail in verse 10. That's the glue that holds these two verses together. How does, how does, the work that, how does it work that the devil is going to have them thrown into jail? What does that look like? Very simply, he's stirring up slander among the Jews against the Christians, and they are going to the Roman officials, and the Christians are, in turn, being thrown into jail. They are a synagogue of Satan because they are so under the influence of Satan and they do his work of slandering the Christians so effectively that the Roman authorities think them to be a real threat to the empire and arrest and imprison them. Can you imagine being so hardened against another group of people? Imagine hating them so much that you'd be willing to allow yourself to be a tool of Satan to knowingly do what would cause them to be imprisoned and have them killed in the end. It's absolutely evil. But that's not the last word by a long shot. Remember, the main emphasis of Jesus here is an encouragement. He says that, All of this is that they may be tested. We see that concept all throughout the Bible. It's literally rendered that we are proved by trial. In other words, when God puts us through a trial, when we are tested, his purpose is to prove uh, prove to us for ourselves that our faith is real. Why does that matter? Well, it's certainly not God testing us so that we can prove something to him. He knows you far better than you know yourself. He knows your heart. He knows that he has truly saved you if you're in Christ. He's showing us that we can have assurance that we are in him. And when we are in him, that we are ultimately okay. It's proof to us that that the trial, no no matter what it is, ultimately will be overcome when we are in Christ. 
Look, we may stumble, we may struggle along the way. We're going to have trials, and what is our tendency going to be? Sometimes our tendency is going to be to want to fix the problem on our own. I get there, I know myself, I face a trial. My first instinct is to want to fix it. I've got to do this on my own. Or maybe it's someone else and, and what's going on in their life is coming up against what I want in my life. So I get angry with them. I get frustrated with them. I want to tell them off or, or get anxious and, and angry or defeated and sad. I want to start questioning everything about myself and my life. And, and then I start questioning God. All of this sort of tosses us around a bit. But what happens is we come out the other end of that through all of our sin, through all of our struggle, through all of our repenting, through all of our having to turn back to God and be reminded yet again of all that he has promised. We trust God more than we did before. We're brought to the other side, standing on our feet, and we look back and we say, wow, I really do know that God is with me and my faith is in him. It also reveals to us the the areas where we struggle, where we aren't trusting God. Areas where we're prone to sin so that in those we can look to Christ all the more. And see where we might grow more faithful, where we might find help and hope through a testing of our faith that we might rest all the more readily upon Christ the next time we're faced with a similar trial. Notice something else remarkable here in the text. Who ultimately is in control of everything? Well, it's certainly not Satan. Satan, the Bible teaches us, can only do as much as the Lord allows him to do. So check this out. Look, Jesus, being the determiner of time and all events that come to pass, is able to reveal that the coming tribulation will be brief. He's telling them it's going to be bad, it's going to be painful, but it's going to be brief. He says, hang in there. It will be over soon. And so he can rightly exhort them by saying, don't be fearful. Don't don't back away. Be faithful. Press on. Persevere. But this statement that they, they will have 10 days of tribulation, it's an allusion to Daniel chapter 1. And there was a testing. If you're familiar with that story, there was a testing that went on of Daniel and his three friends for 10 days. And it repeated twice. You'll remember, during that period, they they went without eating of the king's choicest of foods. And the purpose of the test was to determine whether or not they could remain healthy as all the other youths with a different kind of food. They were tempted to compromise with pagan religion by being pressured to eat at the king's table, but they refused to do so because all of that food was dedicated to idols. Do you remember that story? They were faithful, and God was with them. So that's the idea here, that a testing will come. They will be tempted in all sorts of ways to say, no, 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 don't worry. Don't worry about me. I, I, will, I will worship the emperor. I will worship the gods of the pantheon. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Persevere. Yes, you will face persecution. Yes, this trial is hard, but don't do that. Be faithful and God will be with you. And that's the idea here. The testing will come for a short time, but in the end... Be shown to be faithful. But this isn't easy. This isn't Jesus saying to them that they just need to stand on their heads for 10 days and it will all be over. No, the reality is that many of them will be forced through this test. And they will be faithful unto death. 
He says that, doesn't he? He says, be faithful on to death. They will be martyrs. They will be killed. Their blood will be spilled for their faith in Christ and their unwillingness to bow down to the emperor and to light incense in front of his dead statue. But there's a promise. There's a promise. Isn't it so sweet to read the promises of Jesus? In our most trying, our most difficult moments in life, even when we face death for our faith, he offers the most fitting promise. He says, I will give you the crown of life. What does that mean? Well, it ties to what we see in our final point from verse 11 this morning. If you are in Christ, have no fear of the second death. Again, verse 11, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Christ's promises all come together here. We have this, this, we have this very real reality in life in Christ that we will face trials and suffering and persecution. But our hope isn't in this world. Our hope isn't in our current comforts. Our hope isn't in this life. Our hope isn't that here and now we will receive this, this crown of life. What, what is our hope in? Our hope is if we conquer, if we overcome in Christ, we will, we will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, as we stick it out, even when it costs us something, whether, whether it's our job, whether, whether it's imprisonment, whether it is death, when we stick it out, we are conquerors and we will not ultimately be hurt by this. It's not the first death we have to worry about, it's the second death. We will not be judged based on our righteousness, but that of Christ, which is perfect and acceptable to God. And so we press on in this life and whatever comes will come. And it may be hard, it may be difficult, it may be trying, but it's going to come. But in the end, we will be found to be standing in the righteousness of Christ. And for that reason, we need not fear the second death. I think it's important that we have a full grasp on what he's saying here in terms of the ultimate reward. He doesn't shy away from reality. He doesn't have some kind of silly false hope that that if I just believe enough, then I'll be able to escape all of the bad stuff. I'll be able to get away from suffering. I won't have to encounter death. I'll be rich. I'll have everything I want. He doesn't say any of that nonsense. No, it's quite the opposite. Our hope is in escaping the second death. Our death on this earth will come And it may be, let's be honest and not hide the reality, it may be horrible. It may be horrible. Our death on this earth may be horrible. It may be painful. It may be preceded by months or years of awful suffering. But it's temporary. It's not forever. What is forever? Jesus says, yes, you might have one death that you have to die all right but not the second death. Which death do you prefer? It reminds all of us of what Jesus says in the Synoptic Gospels. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body and then can't do anything more to you. Fear him, rather, after having killed the body, can cast both body and soul into hell. 
you have to decide who your real enemies are. You have to decide who wants your ultimate good. You have to decide what you're really going to be afraid of. So yes, you overcome in this case by dying. Dying from this world, dying from this life on this earth. You overcome in this case by enduring even in the face of death. And your reward is not that you don't die. It's that you don't die the second death. Which is the only one that ultimately counts. Because in 50 trillion years from now when we're still going on in our heavenly dwelling with Christ, nobody's going to worry too much about that first death. But I assure you, in 50 trillion years, those who died the first death and the second death will continue to care that they died the first death when they did. Really, what we're getting at is God's perspective on our lives. Our tendency is to always have our gaze fixed on today and maybe tomorrow. God is seeing the beginning and the end. Yes, things may be tough right now in your life, but you know what? In the big picture, your 70, 80, 90 years of life on this earth are nothing compared to an everlasting reality in heaven. Look beyond today. See what awaits you. Lift your gaze from this world and what awaits you this afternoon or tomorrow or this week and look to Christ. Is it wrong to say things are bad or things are tough or things are painful right now? No, of course not. The Lord wants you to be honest with yourself and before him. We we see that all throughout the Psalms. That's what many of the Psalms are about. But he does want us to remember our hope is not here, is not now. He wants to remind us of some essential things that we should always remember. Christ has the last word, not our enemies, not this world, not Satan. Christ does. Christ is alive forevermore, so that in him we too will live forevermore. Christ knows your pain, he knows your suffering, and he isn't unconcerned, he isn't uncaring about it. He endured far worse, and he relates to you. Your riches are not riches of this world. Your inheritance is not an inheritance in this world. It is all the heavenly blessings in Christ that you can enjoy while you live in this world. You will, if you are in Christ, receive the crown of life. You will not be hurt by the second death. Now, if you aren't in Christ... He is calling on you this morning, this very day, as you hear these very words to put down all of your self-righteousness and all of your assumptions that you're a good person worthy of saving, to put it all away and to run to Christ, to flee to Christ, to have all of Christ and Christ alone. Because Christ has lived a life that you couldn't live and died a death that you deserve to die and was raised from the dead in new life that you can live new life in and with him forever and ever. Will you run to Christ? Brothers and sisters, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to Redeemer Baptist Church.